Story Comic Presents, where we interview amazing storytellers and artists. This is episode 333. I'm your host, Barney Smith of StoryComic.com, and we're excited to have back with us the acclaimed and celebrated comic book writer and artist, Dave Baker. Thank you for Dave. having me, Barney. Thank you. You're Thank welcome. You. Look at that. See? Episode 333. See? Look at that. That's a... Uh... That's a good, yeah. that's a good number, huh? Yeah. Yeah, especially because yeah. the total of that is nine, and there's the nine, <laughs> nine factors into Mary Tyler Moorhawk pretty prominently. Uh, there's nine chapters, nine episodes of the show, nine panel grids. Uh, yeah, the, the whole whole numerology of the book is around nines. It's the ninth printing. Yeah, all of it. So it works well. Because this book, as we talk about, Mary Tyler Moorhawk came originally published in 2022, correct? It uh, was finished and published. It was finished in 2022. It's coming out now. Um, But there's been some exciting times uh, where maybe there are some forces in the present that have been burning all of the copies at distributors. And so we've gone through eight (laughs) other printings. This is the ninth printing. Uh, Who knows? You know, this is definitely a real thing and not just like a kayfabe bit I'm doing because in the Indicia, it says ninth printing, which factors into the ninth printing army at the end of the book. It's totally not kayfabe. It's absolutely real. (laughs) (laughs) You you were on as we did, like last time you were on, it was episode 92 or 95. For those that are interested in learning more about Dave Baker, please go ahead and check out that previous episode that we had on. But here we really want to talk about Mary Tyler Moorhawk. First of all, amazing name. Thank you. Uh, second, t- tell people a little bit about what the what the graphic novel is, and it is over a hundred and thirty pages long. This is Dave. You're never the one to shy away from small stories. <laughs> yeah, and you're looking at it in spreads, so it's actually two seventy pages. Oh, it's that's right. Huge. Yes. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. So the book is titled Mary Tyler Moorhawk, and it is split into two halves. Half of it is a comic book that is kind of a um, retro-futurist Johnny Questian, Nancy Drew archetype uh, group of characters uh, who are part of a conglomerate of super scientists attempting to stop the end of the world from happening, the titular protagonist being Mary Tyler Moorhawk. And then the other half of the book is an epistolary novel told in the form of zines from issues of a magazine 100 years in the future called Physicalist Today that exists in a timeline where physical objects have been outlawed and people who uh, collect comics and cultural ephemera have gone underground and they're referred to as physicalists. And so they buy old magazines and comics and toys and things in these underground basement motel shows. And we follow a journalist 100 Years in the Future, who's named Dave Baker, who's obsessed with this comic and eventual uh, adaptation into a TV show called Mary Tyler Moorhawk. The show only lasted for nine episodes. And so Dave Baker becomes obsessed with figuring out who created the show and why did it get canceled. Eventually, he finds out that the person who created the show was also named Dave Baker. And it sets him off on this weird metatextual uh, journey where he questions his sense of self and his relationship to the media that he consumes. And eventually he tracks or tries to track down this reclusive artist that shares his same name. 
where did the inspiration of this come from? Um, the book kind of started because uh, the, <laughs> the the idea is I wanted to talk about I wanted to do something that was reverential to the the things that I loved as a younger person, Tintin, Hergé, Nancy Drew, the Hardy Boys, Stratemeyer Syndicate, that kind of like the the things that I'm nostalgic for from from my mm. youth, specifically Johnny Quest. And then as I started making it, I started thinking about how that relates to the world now and how a lot of these archetypes have kind of fallen into disrepair and people don't necessarily interact with them in the same way to the degree that a lot of the parodies of these archetypes are the things that have now supplanted the archetypes in our cultural consciousness, i.e. the Venture Brothers, right? Like most people know, right. you know, teen detectives. They're aware of the Hardy Boys, despite there being a currently airing, you know, Canadian produced Hardy Boys show on uh, Hulu and also a CW TV show for Nancy Drew and a, a mid-budget movie for Nancy Drew like two years ago. Um, but the, they, they haven't caught on culturally in the same way, whereas you know, the, the parodies of these things or the echoes or facsimiles of these ideas have. And that kind of sent me down a, a wormhole of thinking about, well, what does it mean to be a fan? What does it mean to be consumed by nostalgia? Is that a positive thing? Is that a negative thing? How has the world been shaped by a, a the, the kind of cultural drift in the meaning of the word nostalgia? Because it used to be mm. nostalgia was just a term that described a wistful feeling of something in your past that you could never reclaim as in going home or, you know, going home again or, um, you know, your the mom's apple pie. You know, you, you just <laughs> never have that again, whatever. And it was a wistful, borderline negative thing. But now the meaning of nostalgia has pivoted so much to to be closer to it's something I'm familiar with. It's a warm feeling. It's a positive experience for me. Um, and it's something that's safe. You know, I, 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 I have predetermined expectations of safety when I enter into a contract with this piece of media. Um, and the fact that everything that gets made now is rooted, including my thing, in some form of nostalgia can't be a positive thing, right? Like, right. what is the the cultural monkey's paw that we're doing in order to make these billions of dollars off the Avengers movies for Disney. What is that a positive thing that we're recycling stories from the 1960s? I don't, I don't know. Maybe it is. Maybe they're, maybe they're modern day myths. Maybe everybody just needs a moral compass instilled in them. And from the, you know, the altar of Jack Kirby, or maybe it's that these corporations that control everything know that they've been, play testing these ideas for 50 years and they can more or less guarantee that they'll attract a certain number of people which will return on their investment and right. so a lot of those ideas and themes kind of echo throughout both sides of the narrative and it kind of informs itself as it waxes and wanes and hopefully goes in some unexpected directions maybe or not maybe it's very maybe it's very expected and you're going to be like this was a waste of time buddy boy and i'll say my bad <laughs> Your name's Dave Baker. You have mm -hmm. a character called Dave Baker in here. Is this something where you've actually used this as some level of nostalgic journey for you? Or is this some sort of inner reflection that you wanted to um, explore for yourself and through a lens of a almost like a autobiography? Sort of, yeah. You? I mean, the, the character of Dave Baker, the journalist, is a very separate and distinct person he does not have my 
biography at all. Um, mm. But also part of that is whenever I'm at conventions, I meet two or three people named Dave Baker. It's a very common Anglo-Saxon last name and a biblical first name. It's really, it's like John Smith, you know, mm. and there's actually here, even here in Los Angeles, there's another guy named Dave Baker that goes to conventions and like he sells like pins and like he's an artist. And uh, there's another guy named Dave Baker who's a lawyer in Los Angeles. And then there's another guy in, in L.A. who's uh, who works at Chipotle. He's like who works in the corporate branch of Chipotle. And he like comes and buys comics from me and gives me like Chipotle gift cards. Like he's a super sweet guy. Um, and so the uh, the. The experience of, of running into all of these people with the same name and yet very disparate lived experiences and yet also not that different because we're all united in some way by fandom um, and the arts really got me thinking and kind of questioning like what does it mean to share a name with someone? Does it, does it mm. provide an existential kind of guide path for your life? Are you working in similar rhythms? Do you love similar people? Are you fans of similar things? Is your home life the same? What, is, what does this mean? And um, so over the course of ruminating on all that stuff, I spent three years writing a novel. <laughs> <laughs> you know, trying to sort it all out. Because yeah, to, be, to be clear, like the, the old man in this version of reality is me like the old mm. creator is me the young person the journalist is not me um but also i think that there's all art is autobiography so there's a case to be made that you know by bisecting my personality into the fan and the creator there's a dialogue that's happening there and a push and pull and what is the level of responsibility for equitable equitable co compensation that each one of these two halves of the commerce cycle of creating art uh, what is their responsibility uh, in that tug of war, and and where do where do the corporate entities that control the means of production fit? You know, all of those themes are kind of throughout the whole book in the future stuff in the physicalist today segments. Whereas all the comic stuff has similar themes, but it's couched more in genre. It's couched more in hyper dense reverential comic book iconography and language, both visually and you know, there's lots of footnotes where they're kind of hearkening mm. back to like 60s Marvel style editorial notes, giving you all this explanation and world building and really trying to suck you in and give you a really rich textured experience. Um, and, um, I, you know, I, that's these, these are the really the, the simple answer of like, what was the inspiration for this is I wanted to make something that if I found it out in the wild, I would be like, what is this? You know, I, would, I was trying to make something really for me as the audience. Um, and ironically, I ended up putting myself in it as the literal audience. <laughs> but, you know, I that wasn't the initial plan. I think my problem necessarily or my compulsion is just like I can't ever say no to myself. So I'm always like, wouldn't it be funny if and then I spend six months doing whatever that idea was. But your art style as well is very reminiscent of the was it mobius i i lived in france for a while um from january to april um i was in france and england last year and i went to mobius's grave uh i went to the Hergé museum in belgium uh the comics museum in angoulême france and i went to the festival there and uh it was really uh, quite an experience living there and really kind of 
observing how they absorb comics. Um, they refer to Banasine and comics and manga as the ninth art, meaning that it is as important as film and TV and, you know, the, the novels, the, the mediums that we all associate with as mass cultural movers and shakers, music, you know. Um, and that to me also was, you know, one of the 7,000 pieces of weird numerology in the book that there is you know, there's nine, they refer to it as the ninth art and there's nine panel grids throughout the whole book. There's nine chapters. The TV show lasted nine episodes. Talk to us a little bit about your process. Did you have this all together and then decided at the end, I'm going with a pink hue or it was the, it was always going to be this color as you put it together? Yeah, it was, uh, it was always going to be this primarily so that I didn't have to do full color because I colored it all myself. Um, wow. you know, everyone is, everyone is tulip, you know, it was written by me, illustrated by Nicole Goo and colored by Ellie Hall and, or co-colored by Ellie Hall and Nicole. And they both did like amazing jobs on the, on the colors. And I don't have that skill or the time. Like I'm, I already spent so much time writing this. This is ostensibly two books, right? It's a, it's a fully fledged novel. And then it's a fully fledged graphic novel shoved to t together and melded and warped and soldered. Right. Um, and the process of doing that was very physically taxing for multiple reasons. One, I retaught myself how to draw. Um, mm -hmm. I, I had injured my hand drawing my last book and I had, I basically had to make changes. I was like, okay, so I can't keep working this way. It's breaking my hand. So I can't ink. So I have to draw in pencil. So how can I just draw in pencil and make it economical and, you know, speedy enough to finish a book. So I developed a, methodology where I would draw my construction lines in red architectural pencil. And then the okay. finished lines that you're seeing are all in just a mechanical pencil that I pull into Photoshop and pull out the architectural drawing pencil lines, uh, leaving just the kind of pristine, no construction line pencils up the contrast and then kind of solidify everything in Photoshop, uh, coloring it digitally. But my hand was so messed up after having drawn the whole book, I colored it with my left hand. Quite an experience, for sure. So how long did this 250-plus page book take you? Probably about five years-ish. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, from beginning to right. end, yeah. And that's that's also because I wasn't working on it. I was working on it more or less the whole time, but it wasn't every day, every day, because, like, while I was working on this, I also wrote Tulip and I wrote um, right. Forest Hills Bootleg Society, Nicole and I's Simon & Schuster book. Uh, I wrote another book that Nicole is currently drawing that we're putting out. Um, I wrote some Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle comics and I drew some stuff. Uh, you know, so there was other things happening while I was doing it. Um, right. But I, this was my the lion's share of whenever I wasn't working on something for somebody else to draw. This is what I was drawing. And you said so. This book is um, as of this recording. This isn't available yet for purchase. Yeah, it it is available February thirteen in comp or February fourteen in comic book stores everywhere. Yeah. So you approach them, or do they approach you and say, "Hey, do you you, you got something that you're working on that we might?" Yeah, be Barney, to... dude, I I pitched this thing everywhere, dude. Like I <laughs> I showed it to everybody, and I had some really interesting conversations with people, and some conversations that I wasn't so excited about, where I was just like, "Yeah, I don't think this is a great fit." Um, and ultimately, 
I sent it to Christaros and you know, man, I think it I think it takes a specific person to see this weird hybrid novel, graphic novel thing and be like, oh, this doesn't easily fit into a bucket. Let's publish mm. it. You know, most right. people want like what are the comps? You know, what are the things that are like this that have proven that things have sold like this? Right. And um and he saw it and he asked me to get on Zoom. We got on Zoom and he asked me two questions. He was just like, is Mary Tyler Moore in this book? And I was like, nope. And he was like, and the ears that sh that she's got, are those, like, is Mickey Mouse involved in any way? And I was like, nope. Has nothing to do with Mickey Mouse. I mean, other than being, like, a stylistic homage. Like, it's not a right. thing at all. It's more just supposed to represent innocence because circles are, you know, we're right. predetermined to be attracted to circles because they look like are young. And she, he was like, "Oh, all right, uh, yeah, let's do it." And I just think of the, I just think the world of him, man. I think the world of him that he could see this in a void of other people's reactions and think, "I think there's something here," you know. I mean, obviously, I think it's cool, but like, I made it. You know what I mean? Like, I'm biased. <laughs> you know, I spent five years making it. I'm very biased. Whereas, right, it's very easy to say. I don't, I'm not sure this will work, you know? And he didn't do that. In fact, he said the opposite. He was like, I really think this could be something. I don't know what, but I think it could. And I, yeah, I just feel so indebted and so honored to have the top shelf brand on the book. And, you know, I, last week or two weeks ago, um, the book got reviewed by Publishers Weekly and they gave it a starred review, which, if you don't know what a star mm -hmm. publishers weekly is Pu publishers weekly is an entity that exists in the book trade space and they review very select number of projects and when they do basically like twenty thousand books get submitted to publishers weekly they review 500 a year and then of those 500 they only give a small percentage what are called starred reviews right. which is basically their like marker that something is truly exceptional and mm -hmm. Uh, it got a starred review and the last line of the review is so crazy dude the last line is like this whirlwind of a graphic novel is sure to please fans of Philip K. Dick and David Foster Wallace it's everything I could have wanted it's it's right. it, this is the part where I get hit by a train like this is I'm not allowed to have a happy ending Barney like ooh, this is <laughs> this is amazing and and the fact that you know the reviewer it's done blind so you don't know who the reviewer is but the fact that the reviewer did it and was so kind and really got what I was doing, but also that they specifically picked up on the David Foster Wallace thing is just like so cool to me because that's exactly what I was. He's a huge influence on me. I love his novels and there are like multiple references to Infinite Jest and Broom of the System and The Pale King and all his books in my book but then also specifically mm. his essays consider the lobster and a supposedly fun thing i'll never do again were very kind of instrumental in for me in kind of like breaking the idea of how i was going to tell the novel stuff up and how i was going right. to fragment everything um because his essays use this footnote mechanic where you're constantly bouncing back and forth between a main body and a footnote that it provides some weird ancillary detail when I read that, I was like, you know, he's actually 
he doesn't know this, but he's making comics. Like the way he's using footnotes is like the space and the time it takes your eye to travel from the main body down to the footnote is the same thing that a comic does where it has an image, a gutter, and an image. And I think I could play around with that. This being a perfect example, right? You have a giant double-page spread of a bunch of cast members with all right. of these asterisks and footnotes, and then you turn the page, and then there's biographies on all these characters and who they are and what their relationship yeah. is to our main that's character. Um, and so that's just one way that the footnotes play out in the book. Another way is the kind of classic... 60s silver age way and then in the prose sections there's lots of footnotes that are very jokey and weird and kind of make you question the narrator and if he's being reliable and like you know it, yeah that's something i was very interested in. I, I love formal experimentation and weird you know literary swings if you're if i <laughs> i'm always down for somebody to be like yeah i got this weird idea i'm just gonna just gonna see if this is cool is this cool most people are like no that sucks and i'm like this is amazing i love it <laughs> as you're putting this together did you come up with the story first or did you come up with the character first i think i i had the idea to do like a johnny quest style action adventure thing with a character called mary tyler moorhawk but she was a part of another thing i, I had an idea to do an a book that was like a collection of screenplays and like a basically like a behind the scenes book of a TV show that never happened. Um, mm -hmm. And one of the episodes was this fake TV show, Mary Tyler Moorhawk, that was adapted from some comics. And I started making a mini comic about Mary Tyler Moorhawk to use as a prop in that short story thing. And then I just kind of fell in love with the character and I was like, oh, this is so much more fun. And I kind of abandoned that other project and was just like, oh, no, it's this. This is what it is. And that's kind of how I feel. You know, it's one thing when you're dealing with a larger publishing entity, like when I worked with Simon & Schuster with Nicole for our book Forest Hills. I had to submit an outline. We gave them a chunk of the script. There was pages. There was a fully written script, you know, and then we had deliverables and everything was very production oriented you know one two three four five right right and that's great it totally makes sense i can work that way but i find that when i'm on my own left to my own devices doing more kind of a painterly approach where you're just kind of sculpting and figuring things out and oh maybe it's this or oh maybe it's that or maybe it's over here yields more experimental and exciting work and Frankly, I think the downside of that is that you can end up lost in a world of your own making. But you're just like, <laughs> what am I doing? Is this book ever going to be finished? Like, who is this book even for? Um, and then you also find things that you would not have found otherwise. Right. Well, then that's a good point then, Dave. Who is this book for then? Dude, frankly... Apparently, it's for for me, the goal was to make something that was literary. You know, there's there are literary comics, 100%. But there aren't as many of them as I would like. I, I wish mm. that we had our infinite jest, our house of leaves, our, you know, raw shark texts, you know, experimental, weird, avant-garde literary books 
that connect with people in a strange way and maybe bring people into comics that wouldn't have even thought about it before. You know, Sean Tan is another person that comes to mind of somebody who does writing and drawing in unconventional ways. Um, And, you know, I really wanted to make something that I wasn't sure who the audience was. I just knew I thought it was cool. And if I'm a weirdo, there's got to be other weirdos out there. So (laughs) let's try and find some weirdos, you know, let's see where this can go. And I, you know, we're talking before the book is out, but frankly, you know, today it had a review on the beat dot com and the review is amazing like the the reviews crazy it's it's i the the uh the last line of the review i've got it here is um mary tyler moorhawk is a dense fascinating work it's a graphic novel that re- will require several reads and while on occasion it can feel too uh on the nose or too indebted to its influences there's an important critique here worthy of considering. It stands out as an experimental and worthwhile evolution in Baker's style, style and will surely be looked back on as one of his best works. What? What? <laughs> I, this is, it's, it's, I think to me, it's just unbelievable that it's not getting just like a shrug of indifference from people. You know, like it's, it's just so crazy to me that it is positively critically received i mean i'm sure that once the book is out in the wild there's going to be people that are like this is hard i don't want to read a novel you know (laughs) which is fine totally that's honestly that's what i've been expecting this whole time is just for people to be like i don't really get it and then in 10 years for it to kind of come back in some way and some at somebody at a convention one time might be like you know i found that book and it was really intense like yeah i wasn't expecting that experience but man that was a wild time. Um, Did, but the fact so it's, working, it's oh, crazy. Do you have the, the, the drive and the curiosity to, to revisit that world that you created? I don't know. Initially, I was like, yeah, let's do another one. And now I kind of feel like, I don't know. I think that there's ways of revisiting kind of thematic similarities without literally doing another book about her but i also Mm. conversely a bunch of the characters from this book show up in my other book halloween boy um okay she she has not shown up yet but i wouldn't write that off i I could see myself using her but it would just be a different thing as like just the comic book stuff you know like because i like her as a character but i think this piece with the two i think it's kind of a two-hander you know to borrow a film term where it's it's that push and pull of the two data sets of this strange you know future version of society and also this weird action adventure comic that's played completely earnestly let's talk so what's next for you then that's a good question man um so i'm I'm currently you know self-publishing halloween boy i've made five issues of it um they're all oversized the last two are triple sized they're each 60 pages long (laughs) because you know why would i do something easy um and i'm i'm playing around with maybe i'll do some more halloween boy stuff i haven't really decided on that um for the past month i've just been doing tons of this you know pro promo tour stuff lots of interviews lots of podcasts all that all that goodness um and then I've got a couple unannounced projects 
and um, you know, it's the, it's the hustle, right? You're always working on five things. It's a question of which of those things actually ends up manifesting first. Right. Yeah. That's amazing. Like you said, this is something I've been working on. It's all, almost it feels like as though you just like took a piece of yourself and put it out there and it seems as though compared to your other projects, this is the one that has like most of you in it now. Yeah, I think so to a certain, I mean, I think that I don't mean this in a way that diminishes any of the other things. Cause I'm very right. proud of the work that I've done, especially the work with Nicole, right. I think is, I think it's a separate, I just think of it as a separate thing, right? Like Nicole right. writes and draws stuff for herself. I write and draw stuff for myself, but the stuff we do together to me, that's almost like the super group, you know, that's like the, mm you know, the, the velvet underground of what we do, where it's everybody coming together. It's the Beatles or whatever, where when, when we're on our own, like, this is my weirdo. I don't like the Beatles enough to be able to know George Harrison's solo stuff, I guess. I don't know. Whichever of them is the weirdest. I don't know. Um, <laughs> you know, but I, Brian Eno, I'll go with Brian Eno. This is my Brian Emo, Eno, like ambient soundtrack thing where you're just like no one's gonna listen to this and then now ambient is like a huge genre that's like you know it played everywhere and people love it um right and uh yeah i but it i think that there is something i, I would say it's the most literally autobiographical um right where it's it's very much about the things i care about the history of comics the history of culture the waxing and waning of the levers of power, the separation of the worker from the means of production, the gangster history of uh, American identity and how we have consistently been non-empathetic to the creative class, uh, the way characters are stripped away from their creators, uh, even now. Um, you know, like all of those themes are things that I am obsessed with um, and they manifest in the books in different ways. Where in this one, it's quite literally that, <laughs> you know, like the, the one of the footnotes, like the first footnote is just a history lesson on the various eras, you know, of, you know, the Silver Age, the Golden Age, Bronze Age, you know, the Dark Age of mm -hmm. comics. Like, it's very like, you know, like that review said, sometimes it's a little on the nose. But frankly, we live in an era where subtlety is dead, man. Subtlety yeah. is just whether it is whether it succeeds is a separate conversation but i wanted to make something that attempted to be literary that right. attempted to push the medium in a new direction that attempted to aspire to the heights of what the medium what we always talk about how the medium's potential is limitless which is true but also on what scale right because how many times right. does a publisher on a mainstream level take a big artsy swing frankly pretty rarely it's usually steeped in genre because that's commercially viable nine times out of ten um right. and i was really hoping that you know i could find somebody to partner with that would believe that i was doing that thing on a successful scale which is exactly what chris Staros saw in the book and frankly if it wasn't for the design work of mike lopez and the photography of david catalano i, I don't know i don't know if i don't know if it would have succeeded i think it's a combination of their design aesthetic, the photography, the prose and ideas that I had, the humor that I bring to it, and then also the comics as this weird soup of ambition that even if it's not really your thing, you could still look at it and be like, well, that guy's trying. 
Like he's, he's crying. It's good, man. It's I am. I love it. So, well, thank you so much, Dave, for coming on. I look forward to our next conversation. Yeah. Thank you for having me, man. It was a little pleasure. Oh. out my let me i gotta get my comic book background now since we're talking comics there we go all right see i just changed i just i just switched rooms just like that see yeah just like that love it dune what else is in there a little uh little nemesis a little uh yeah center midnight club yeah